Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Muse, the brain-sensing headband that helps you meditate. I'm Patricia Karpis, your host, along with my co-host every other week, Muse co-founder, Ariel Garten. We just launched a new Muse called Muse S, which features a comfortable, soft fabric headband. It gives you real-time feedback on your brain, heart, breath, and body during meditation, and also includes new features designed to help lull you to sleep. Check it out at choosemuse.com and use Untangle15 for your discount code. And if you've ever wanted to learn to meditate in a beautiful setting, check out the Do Nothing Leadership Retreat at donothingbook.com. It's five days in the Colorado mountains starting April 19th and is focused on learning to meditate so that you can be a better leader at work and at home. It's a great place to chill and learn. Former Untangle guest Rob Dubay is the founder and the reviews have been great. I'll be there this year leading the kickoff night, so I'd love to see you there. Now, on to the show. Today's guest is Koshin Paley Ellison, the co-founder of the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care, a Jungian psychotherapist and a visionary thought leader and teacher in the world of -of end-of-life care. He's also the author of a relatively new book called Wholehearted, Slow Down, Help Out, Wake Up. In this conversation, he shares why it's so important that we connect with one another with honesty and vulnerability. He shares how often we put artificial barriers between us and others and builds a strong case for being more emotionally intimate in all of our interactions and relationships. The idea that we're too crazy busy all the time to see and hear one another is pandemic and is creating a culture of loneliness and isolation. He suggests that more connection with each other will help us to live our lives to the fullest. Now, here's Koshin. Koshin, it is so great to have you back on Untangle today. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you, Patricia Carpenter. I loved your little book. And I say little just because the size is, it's physically a small book, but it's a big book. There's a lot of really wonderful wisdom. And what I loved was the quote that the Dalai Lama wrote about your book. I'm going to read it for everyone. It seems that in the 21st century, more and more people are spending their lives in isolation from each other. Not the kind of isolation that comes from living alone, though this seems to be a growing problem in some societies, but the isolation that is the result of creating artificial barriers between ourselves and others. Was this part of your foundational thinking for writing this book, this idea that we're so isolated from one another? When I was approached to write this book, I really was asked, what am I concerned about and what am I thinking about? And as a Zen teacher and as a psychotherapist and as a chaplain and all the different, and as a friend, what I see is over and over how people are becoming more and more isolated. And in the physicians that we train, they're really, in some ways, so desperate for connection. And that people are really getting into trouble. Even the World Health Organization has announced it as a health pandemic because actually people's health really decreases the more isolated we are. So, yeah, so one of the things that I was interested in, what was so healing for my own isolation into connection was the getting involved in Zen practice. And then I Mm -hmm. wanted to write about how 
can you use that? How could anyone use that? And so the two kind of main people I had in mind when I was writing the book was my mother and my niece. And I wanted a book that they could understand while they're, you know, Buddhist curious, but certainly not Buddhist practitioners. And for it to be understandable and relatable as a way of how do we work with these divisions that we set up and our hiding and our fear and and how do we connect? Yeah. And you have this image in the beginning of the book about waking up in zombie land. And you talk about how people are walking around with their cell phones. If somebody was looking at us from above, they would think we were zombies. Will you talk a little bit about that and what you call the lone wolf syndrome? Yeah, so I recently was at this really beautiful restaurant with the most beautiful farm-to-table food, and it's this very intentional restaurant and kind of fancy, and some friends of us brought us there, and it was so amazing because it was dimly lit and beautiful. Everything was so gorgeous, but what you saw were these rings of light, and as I walked around the restaurant, everyone, pretty almost every single person was on their phone. This is dinner? This is dinner. <laughs> it was so unsettling. And when mm-hmm. I looked and I walked around and, just, and everyone was on their social media and many people were communicating and writing, DMing different people who were clearly not at the table. And I feel like that this is what zombie land is, is that we're here we are in this very beautiful place with this very intentional food. And not remembering together how to have intentional, loving, connected relationships. One of the things that I reflect on so much is about how zombies originally, before they were what we imagine them to be, undead things, going to eat people's brains, but as orphan children, that's where the kind of the image originally started. And that they were so hungry for connection and life and protection. And so I think that in many ways, we are those zombies. We've orphaned ourselves from connection. And it's heartbreaking. And it's so easy to do because we don't like feeling uncomfortable or we forget how to be a little awkward even and take a risk. And yet, what happens when we do and we actually take a risk to actually connect to people, we tend to feel much better and feel more alive. Well, do you think part of the challenge is that people think they are connecting when they're on their social media and it's this misunderstanding of what connection really is that makes us feel so lonely? Because these rates of loneliness are so high. Someone in another interview that we did was talking about Theresa May creating a ministry of loneliness because it was Mm -hmm. so critical to our health and well-being. And it is such a huge challenge. And how do we reclaim that emotional intimacy with one another now that we've come so far and become such zombies? Well, it's a real question. And I think that learning how to, like the subtitle to the book is slow down and help out and wake up. And so for me, it's these kind of simple instructions. For example, there's nothing wrong with social media in itself, but it's all about balance, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so learning how to slow down, like, do I really need to check that right now? Am I actually where I am? Or I was recently in a training about some kind of meditative thing. And the moment there was a break that everyone was on their phones and are back on their social media. <laughs> we feel that we don't know how to be in time where it's unstructured. And so just learning to slow down and feel our breath in our body and actually to look around and maybe get a drink or get some water or maybe lay down. We do forget to do else. all those things I that actually amazing. might feel good. Yeah. I mean, the way that you're describing it, it's really our brain's addiction, right? Our brain is responding to this need. We feel like it's an artificial need, perhaps, but it's this need to grab our cell phones and not miss what might be happening next. And right. so what you talk about is how do we really just stop? What does it take for our brains to stop taking that action so that right. we can be present with one another? Right. And enjoy our lives. Well, I think people think they are enjoying their lives when they're scrolling through Instagram and Facebook and connecting with people. But it almost seems like, to your point earlier on, that it's gotten so out of balance that right. we've lost this ability to be able to connect with one another. And But part of what you were saying before, which I do want to talk about, because I think a lot of people feel this way because we have such high rates of also anxiety and social anxieties. This feeling of, you said, discomfort and awkwardness in being emotionally intimate and close with someone. So this idea of having a digital intermediary can be really helpful for people that feel like that, but it doesn't give you that real connection that your heart needs. Right. It's like yesterday I was in training a group of people and we sat down and there was this awkward silence. and. It's fine. You know, what happens? So we just sat with the silence and then a moment passed and everyone started talking. And it's that we have learned to any kind of aversion, any kind of discomfort, like, oh, awkwardness. Oh, no. Oh, no. It's like it's a terrible thing. We always feel like we have to do something instead of the basic teaching is, is just be there instead of do something. Right. And so just learning again, that slowing down, and then we can actually maybe even feel our feet on the floor, feel our sitting down and looking, and then we might be even be helpful to other people, because then we might even notice, oh, are you feeling awkward? How are you doing? Yeah. It made me laugh in your interview with Dan Harris. He was talking about how in your program, one of the things he hated most but learned so much from was the dyad experience where you have to sit across from one another and just <laughs> look into each other's eyes and not move. And I run for the hills when anybody ever suggests that exercise in any workshop I've ever been to. That is the most uncomfortable thing. But I thought it was interesting that he said that it has really helped him in relationships with other people. So I'm wondering what ways do we need to teach and or torture ourselves to really learn that sitting in silence is okay, taking time to connect or to even be uncomfortable. I think this also gets back to 
learning how to be with any of our feelings, which is such a big lesson in you teach this so much in, in your programs and in everything that you do. How do we just sit with uncomfortable feelings? Yeah, I think that one of the ways that we can do that is to realize that we're not our feelings. We feel uncomfortable, for example, like you're saying, I run for the hills. I'm the kind of person who runs for the hills. So learning how to feel our feelings without becoming them. So over-identifying with the feelings. So then we think we are that. Oh, I'm not the kind of person who fill in the blank. And so like learning how to gently and lovingly say, really, is that really who I am? Or that's just up until this point who I've been. And learning how to connect is everything. and. To me, one of the wonderful ways to do that is to realize, oh, right, many years ago, I used to think, I don't like anger. I'm not an angry person. I'm the kind of person who doesn't like anger. What I realized is I had all this buried anger that I didn't want anyone, because I was so busy also wanting everyone to really like me. And so my habit of wanting everyone to like me. So then I didn't want to express my anger because I didn't feel like people would like that. Mm -hmm. And so to me, the beauty is just being more and more curious about, wow, what am I really saying? And what is really true? What's really going on here? I think it's amazing how I often, you know, have the privilege of working with dying people and I've yet to meet a person who is dying who said, oh, I'm so glad I was so habituated my whole life. I'm so glad I just hid out and just believed all of my fears. Most people are feel so much regret mm. and are so oh, heartbroken about how mm. they believed their fears and how much they hid out and how much they didn't connect to the people that they really wanted to. And so learning how to do that now is such a gift because we have this amazing opportunity of being alive to really be alive. I think you use the image of yourself always holding this happy balloon when you were feeling really sad. There's a quote in your book, usually our preferences rule the roost. Conditioned feelings and opinions tend to determine how we all behave in our relationships, which means in every interaction, we tend to follow the same script. Mm -hmm. And I think people wonder, and it takes a lot of work, but how do we change that script? I feel like if you've been studying this material for a long time, you might know you are not your feelings, you are not mm -hmm. your thoughts, but I do think that that's really a difficult concept to know inside and out in your body and how do you really learn that and change those scripts that you repeat over and over again yeah i think that one way we can do that in a very simple way is just to ask ourselves whenever we say something for example they someone said to me well that's all well and good but i'm not that kind of person who takes risks and I said, is that really true? And then they thought, well, I hadn't thought about that. And then they thought, well, actually, there have been times that I've taken risks 
And I said, well, how did that go? And they said, well, sometimes it's gone really well. And it's actually one time when I asked my partner to marry me or when I've done different things in their life. And they actually turned out to be moments in their life where they actually made significant changes or moved towards what was most meaningful to them. And so I think we get in the habit of not aligning with our values according our actions don't often align with our values and so i think sometimes just asking the simple question when we say certain things about ourselves to ourselves or to other people Mm -hmm. to say is that really true to be a little playful about it too and just to say "Mm -hmm. is that really the deal or is that my story of the deal and most of us know if we take a moment how to check that out. Yeah, and I think that's probably the key is just even having the self-awareness to ask the question. And if you can create that habit, that would make a huge difference. Totally. Hoshan, you filtered the chapters and or these teachings based on 16 Buddhist precepts. But like you were saying before, and I will validate this, the book is accessible and real for anyone. But why did you choose that particular lens? And why is that such an important lens for navigating our lives or or having the right tools or getting good at being, as you call it, imperfectly perfect? (laughs) I feel that we live in such times where ethics are so important and people don't know even know how to think about things or what lens to think about things through. So these Zen Buddhist ethics or precepts are lenses just to see our life through. And so, for example, one of them is about stealing. For example, to be able to reflect on how am I stealing in my life? And then most people will say, well, I don't steal. I don't take things from other people. But how do we steal time from someone? How do we steal from our own experience by our isolating ourselves, for example? So we steal in different ways. And so for me, it was a really wonderful lens to just reflect on in an ethical way, like how are we living an ethical and moral life? And how do we return? Because we all basically know what is most meaningful to us. Like if you ask people, just Mm -hmm. folks, what are the values that are most important to you? Most people know what they are if they take a moment. And then in my experience, when I ask people that, then I usually ask, how often do you feel like you're actually functioning in your thoughts and your words and your actions? from that space. For most of us, it's rarely, because we're mostly functioning in a very reactive space. Because for example, going back to our phone, we're just zooming around. And now apparently the average screen time is between nine and 10 hours a day. And people are just on their phones all the time. So they're not actually spending time. For example, one important value that many people have is love, right? And expressing love, whether they have a partner or they don't have a partner, but to have loving relationships. 
And then they find that they're so busy, or as often people say now, oh, how are you doing this? I'm crazy busy. Are you crazy busy? Yeah, I'm crazy busy, crazy busy. <laughs> we get in this habit and then we reinforce each other. It's almost a good thing to be crazy busy. So to come back to these precepts as a way of just returning, like, right, what do I value most? And how am I living my life now? in relationship to those things. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Everybody does say, I'm so crazy busy, I'm so crazy busy. But also, when someone says, I'm so crazy busy, it's easy to take that personally and just say, I'm fine, how are you? Because <laughs> you don't want to get into any depth about how you're feeling or how you're really doing. Right. If someone's crazy busy, I always feel like if somebody says that to me, I feel like I want to say, oh, I don't want to interrupt you. Go do whatever it is you're twirling around doing. It's such a funny message. and It creates more isolation. It creates so much isolation. And you talk about in the book, how do we break those barriers? And I think you were talking about vulnerability and how we really share. And I think you can't do this all the time, for sure. But mm -hmm. you do talk about how there are some people in your life where you really want to share your deepest feelings. Exactly. And how do we really cultivate those relationships? So one of the things and, that I talk about in the book is also that this real power, my friend Tarona Lodog, who's this amazing physician and family medicine practitioner, herbalist, she's amazing. As a family practitioner, people would come in to see her for their first appointment, she would always ask them, who are the five people today who would drop everything to be here for you? And what she found also was that people would say, mm, well, my sister. And then said, well, she's busy. She's got a lot going on. And what she found is that more and more people had not much to say and you accept a lot of sadness. Mm -hmm. So that conversation about who would drop everything to be with you ended up bringing up a lot of sadness for people. And so she would write on a prescription pad, develop your five. And so how do we really remember to do that? And like even the people in our lives, how do we leave our house and how do we pay attention to our neighbors and the baristas and all the different people who populate your life. What's your relationship like with those people? The person who delivers your mail, the person who, there's so many people in our life. And they may not be the closest people, but all those places are places of possibility and a richer life. Do you think that you've become really good at this? In general, I don't know if I'm good at it, but I feel like it's my core practice. I don't ever think I'll get good at it because I think relationships in particular take daily and regular fostering and nurturing. And the people who show up for you mean an enormous amount. And so how do we really pay attention to that? So I feel like I've gotten extremely clear about how important relationships are. Mm -hmm. And I do feel that one of my primary 
things is how do my actions throughout the day foster those relationships? And how am I connecting and how am I not? The key thing to to me is also not to reflect on it with a shame or blame attitude, but just to say, okay, I didn't really connect today. What can I do tomorrow? Or how can I even take a moment today just to feel gratitude for these people that they do exist in my life, even though I wasn't able to connect to them? So just appreciating yeah. is pretty sweet. In the book, you talk about relaxing into suffering. And mm-hmm. I think when people hear the word suffering, and we talk about it a lot when we have Buddhist discussions, it turns them off because it's just such a charged word. But you're mm-hmm. talking about it in a way that is, you know, we need to relax into the face of whatever's happening. And it's when we resist that we truly suffer. And so I'd love for you to talk a little bit about suffering. The favorite topic of the Zen Buddhist. (laughs) Suffering is just part of life. It's just, I've not met someone who hasn't suffered. And again, I was with this group of students yesterday, and people were talking about what was up for them in the morning. Um, Something happened, and it affected all of them, and they were all able to share, wow, how they were struggling with it. And they're all studying to be caregivers and really talking about what's difficult about the work for them and really talking about where they get a little heartbroken or feel a lot of grief. And it was amazing to watch the first person was a little nervous sharing it. And then the next person shared their suffering. And then the next person shared theirs. And what happened in the group is Everyone started leaning in, and you could feel that people felt both received and heard and experienced. Mm -hmm. And that very often we hide those things because we want to be good or seen as competent or in control. But what I witnessed is yesterday was that kind of relaxing into suffering looks very ordinary. It's like, wow, what are you struggling with these days? And what And I'd love to hear. And then we can figure out, oh, and how are you working with that? And do you need some help or any kind of support? And it was just beautiful to see what naturally arises out of that kind of slowing down and just talking about like, wow, this is, I'm having a lot of struggles right now. And then it naturally moved into this beautiful conversation about, love and connection Mm -hmm. because everyone felt loving because we're all vulnerable, right? Mm -hmm. We all experience struggle. And the beauty is we can actually be together in it. And so, you know, the historical Buddha talked about Sangha, our community, and how important it is. And wow, it really is a medicine for suffering. It's like, wow, we can be together in it. And it wasn't wallowing in it. It was saying, I've got mine. What's yours? How are you with that? How are you with it now? And how can we help each other? It was so beautiful. And you felt like the depth of those six relationships moved in a very deep and 
vertical way, just like really there was so much more room in those relationships because they were able to share their struggle in a new way. Yeah. That whole process that you're talking about serves so many of our needs, right? Because we crave, we crave being in community and that whole idea of how are you suffering and how are you working with it is such a real conversation and touches you so deeply. And it can be a little bit of suffering. It could be that you've had a headache all week, or it could be that you just lost somebody that you love. Everyone suffers in different ways at different times, but to be able to share that, to have a community to share that in is really quite amazing. Totally. It's such a big deal. And I think that that is like the place where, and what they were talking about in lunch was like, wow, I didn't realize, two people said, like, I didn't realize that other people were struggling too. And so I think that we were conditioned to not have those conversations. So we are just walking around holding and thinking that we're alone in our struggle. And we forget that, oh my God, you too. Yeah. Oh, and you too. All right, because we're human beings. I think part of it has to do with, and I'm not sure exactly how to say this, but Most people don't want to be defined as dramatic or even whiny or, as you're saying, wallowing. And the truth is, when we learn how to share our deepest feelings and we find the language for that, it's usually not dramatic, wallowy, or whining. It's just very real. But I feel like there's this fear. Exactly. And we're somewhere else and we have to hide out. And that we will be ostracized. Like, oh my God, I struggle too. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) What does it take to have deep trust and intimacy with others? And how do we create these relationships? And how do we create these communities? As my teacher says, it takes everything. You know, it just takes our willingness just to show up and to take risks and to go beyond our comfort zone. Because if I just stayed in my comfort zone, I'd probably stay in bed. (laughs) Right, me too. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Pretty nice there. It's such a beautiful image. We just want to be comfortable to stay in our bed. And how do we get out of the house, literally, and meet people and have those kind of conversations? And now, like in our apartment building, we have some of the most amazing conversations in the elevator with our neighbors. Our building has this beautiful community vibe. And on my way to down to the center, like I have so many relationships now, and it feels like, wow, it feels sometimes I feel like it's like the <laughs> Sesame Street. And I think there's yeah. such a beautiful practice to actually have a more enlivened life. And then you realize, oh, right, I wonder what's going on with them. And or this one story, because usually, I have this very particular morning ritual. I get up very early and I sit and then I I do different things. And then I go down to the gym. And at the gym, I had this really interesting interaction with this guy who was always in the locker room at the same time as me. And I had this whole story about this person. I thought I was so sure that he was really not nice. He was whatever he was. And then Mm -hmm. one day, 
I saw him and his arm was in a sling and I said, how are you? And he looked at me and he like burst into tears. And it turned out that his mother had just suddenly died and he broke his collarbone. All of these different things happened. And it turns out that he's, you know, and I don't, I never talked to anybody. He was just sad and alone. And I had made the whole story up. And I think that's just what we do, right? Like we make up stories about people and just to realize that and then do something different and say, and the instructions so simple, how are you? Right. right. And then just wait for the response instead of crazy busy, crazy busy, crazy busy. <laughs> Is building communities of trust and intimacy as simple as talking to people that are in your everyday life, or is there something intentional that we can do to build these communities that will help all of us feel more socially connected and more intimate with one another? I think it's a combination. I think it's one is building friendships and family relationships where you feel that you're with people who can really be there for you. And also those are the people that you can share your real vulnerability with. So I think that's so important and to yeah. something that we can work on, making sure we have share meals together and time together. And we have like one of our dear friends, we just go for walks together. And that intentionality actually is not enough. It's actually how we are. So like, what are we actually doing? It's one thing to have the intention to spend those times. It's another thing to actually participate in them. And I think that that's one thing. And then along with that, we can also foster those relationships with our mail person, with our grocery store people, with all of these people that we actually depend on. And in my experience, it feels pretty good to know people. To make those connections, yeah. Another quote from the book, it's about elevating ourselves and blaming others. And you say, in part, our brain just works this way. It functions by noting differences. And the key to working with this habit is not to stop yourself from the natural process of noting the difference, but to figure out how to live peacefully with the beauty of diversity. And it feels like that ties in with so much of what you're seeing because you don't want to only connect with people who are like you. Talk to me a little bit about this idea of how we have more curiosity about people than judgment, which is, I well, think, what that is about. Well, for me, one of the ways that I experience that in my life is that I have so many different kinds of relationships. For example, when I wake up in the morning, one of my relationships is that I'm a husband and the steward for my cats. Right. <laughs> and a cat papa. <laughs> and like attending to those things. And then when I walk in the street or I get in the elevator, I'm a neighbor and just enjoying that, those kinds of relationships. Mm -hmm. And then I'm a subway person and then I'm a gym person. And then, then when I get to the center, I'm a Zen teacher. And to enjoy that we all have many actual identities and we actually are different throughout our whole day. And 
how do you appreciate how you're different through your day and how you become different things throughout your day? Everyone does. And to learn how to have those kind of diverse relationships, like, all right, I'm not one kind of person. Mm-hmm. And it's so wonderful to be able to be many things. And then if we realize that we're many things, what I realize is that I'm more open and appreciative that all the people I'm meeting also are many things. And so then I realize, oh, they're not just the stories I make up. Throughout their day, there are many different kinds of people. (laughs) It's so amazing. There's freedom in that too, and letting go of the stories and really having that level of acceptance. Oh, it's so relaxing. Koshin, you have been studying Jungian psychology for many years, right? Many, many Mm -hmm. years. I studied formally for six, yeah. We haven't really talked about Jungian psychology in this interview, but I'm curious about how it intersects with your Buddhist teachings and how Mm -hmm. this combination for you has been the richness that you're offering Mm -hmm. in the book and in the work that you do. Yeah, so one of the ideas of Jung is that he felt that it was so important for us to be able to hold very different ideas, almost opposite ideas in our mind at the same time, right? So that actually is where, for me, so much intersects. So I can realize, wow, I'm feeling really angry about whatever, And I'm also feeling really loving. And so in my work as a therapist, I have the honor and privilege to be with these amazing people that I've worked with for many, many years. And also helping them to hold, as Jung called it, the tension of the opposite. So that, that tension is actually where life is. Life force is actually comes from that tension so that we're always between things and we're, we're always actually emotions are rising every 20 seconds or so. So we're always feeling joyful and heartbroken. We're feeling, mm-hmm. you know, ambivalent and we're feeling funky and we're feeling we're ever changing. And the beauty to me, it kind of goes back to that kind of diversity. It's just like, wow. My goodness, throughout my day, I'm so many things and I experience so many things. And mm-hmm. how amazing and heartbreaking when I limit myself or I put myself in a tube. And then they said, like, don't put a snake in a tube. It's like, but don't put something that is alive and writhing into a little tiny area. Yeah. So for me, that's one of the places of intersection with Jungian psychology and Zen practice is just the appreciation of the ever-changing nature of reality. And the second one I would say that is most important to me is Jung's real interest in the healing power of imagination and really be able to imagine where we're going. So he talked about it in terms of this word telos, which is means the direction things are going. And so just to be able to imagine what else. So like, oh, I'm feeling like I'm going to 
burst into flames or something. And, and then, then what happens? And just to be able to have a playful and engaged attitude with our own imagining so that we don't get stuck in one fixed reality, mm. which to me is such an important teaching for this time where so many people are feeling so compressed and tight. And so how do we just imagine what else could happen here? Yeah. And how do I participate in my own imagination so I can feel really tight? So it kind of goes back to the tension of the opposites. I can feel really tight and really imaginative at the same time, far out. I love that idea of not getting stuck in one or the other. And in some ways, it's similar to the teachings in Buddhism around impermanence, the ever-changing nature of everything. And how also that can be very relaxing. In some ways, if we can relax into that, even when we feel excruciating pain or heartbreak or grief, we realize, oh, I'm experiencing that now and it's so hard and I know it won't last. Which is such an important lesson. Totally. Koshin, I could go on talking to you about this stuff for <laughs> ages. I highly recommend this book. Is there anything else that you want to share with us today that maybe we haven't discussed? I guess for me, the most important, as Mizumi Roshi, the founder of our school, says, the work is really to appreciate our lives. And to me, the reason I wrote this book was to be a good companion. And actually, this whole size of everything about it was quite intentional. So it could be a companion in your purse or your bag and to take it with you. And how do we develop good companions on the road? The development of those companions, in particular the human ones, are so important. And to me, this is also what makes life so rich and beautiful. So my wish for everybody to really appreciate their lives and to rest deeply in their own experience and widen out into more loving relationships. That is so beautiful and such a great wish for the new year too. So thank you, Koshin. Thank you so much for hanging with you today. You're the best. Totally. You're the best, PK. (laughs) Thanks so much to Koshin for being with us today. His book is available at all major booksellers and his website is zencare.org. If you have suggestions for guests, please send them to untangle at choosemuse.com. And don't forget to check out Muse also at choosemuse.com and use your Untangle 15 discount code. For hundreds of great meditations, also check out Meditation Studio app in the iTunes App Store, and we'll see you next week.